0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show...
2: A clash of the big tech titans. Why is Facebook waging war against Apple? True to form, it's getting nice and personal between the two bosses. Battle has commenced.
1: Is AI the answer to all our problems or the seeds of humanity's eventual destruction? Or neither?
3: Every time you are blown up in a game of Space Invaders, it doesn't matter, you just play again. But in the real world, it matters.
1: And the world would look very different without the humble LED. We speak to one of the engineers behind this illuminating
0: technology. So we could see the light just explode out of this small crystal. It was a an awakening
1: First up, on the 2nd of February, Amazon announced that its founder, Jeff Bezos, is stepping down as chief executive and becoming executive chairman. Bezos will hand the reins to Andy Jassy, the head of Amazon Web Services, the company's cloud division. On today's episode of our daily podcast, The Intelligence, Patrick Fowles, The Economist's business affairs editor, laid out some of the big decisions facing Amazon's new boss.
3: One of them, for example, is whether the company eventually spins off AWS, this huge cloud business. Another is how much further to expand Amazon. It's getting into new areas all the time. But where to draw the line, I think, is the other big dilemma.
1: While the tech giant faces its future elsewhere in Silicon Valley, two other titans are locked in combat. It began late last year, when Apple announced changes to its privacy policy that will make it harder for developers to track users across different apps and websites. The change outraged Facebook, which launched an ad campaign standing up to Apple, on the grounds it would threaten small businesses, and of course, the social media giant itself. In late January, Apple hit back with a campaign of its own called A Day in the Life of Your Data, which reveals how companies track user data across the web and apps. Now there are reports that Facebook could be about to take its war with Apple to a new level by suing the company.
2: You've got this time-honored tradition of big feuds between the giants.
1: Tamsin Booth is our technology and business editor.
2: Back in the day, you had Apple versus Microsoft with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates sniping at each other. Then you had Apple v. Google um, with Jobs saying that Google copied iOS with um, the Android system. You've got a bit of Microsoft versus Amazon lately. But now you've really got, for the roaring 20s, you've got Facebook versus Apple over privacy. And, you know, true to form, it's getting nice and personal between the two bosses. Apple wants more privacy. That hurts Facebook's business model and battle has commenced. So it's getting personal. It is indeed. Senior people at Facebook have called Tim Cook a prig Top people at Apple are calling Zuckerberg, you know, behind the scenes, obviously, they call him a menace. And Tim Cook has this thing of not mentioning Facebook by name, but he makes very clear that he basically thinks that Facebook's model carries the risk of nothing less than violence, social catastrophe, political polarisation, the works. So it's really getting um, as personal as any past tech feud has been, I believe.
1: What is the dispute actually about?
2: I think we can really trace what's going on um, here back to about a decade ago when Apple was not so worried about privacy and tracking people's visits on the internet. And all its devices um, had unique device identifiers, UDIDs, a kind of super cookie. And other companies used these things to track people um, across the internet. And they helped app developers at the time make money from personalized ads and that of course helped um Apple's own ecosystem of, of apps and the App Store. But then in 2010 Apple and Google got in trouble for the way in which um iPhone and Android apps were spying on users. And so at that point in 2012 for iOS 6 they brought in something to replace the UDID called the um, Identifier for Advertisers IDFA. And bear with me here this I know it's a lot of acronyms but it but it's really important. The IDFA was essentially a kind of less offensive way, a less invasive way to track iPhone users across the internet. The, The IDFA is deletable, it's temporary, unlike the UDID. IDFA tracking is switched on iPhones by default. And the big thing now is that Apple is changing its policy. So privacy has become completely central to Apple's brand. So the big change that has caused all this fuss is that with iOS 14, um, Apple is going to be proactively asking users if they want to share this IDFA data. An awful lot of people are expected to say, no, please don't share. Don't track me.
1: So what do you think the impact will be of these changes for Facebook and the rest of the online advertising industry?
2: So Facebook objects to this I mean, very basically because it damages the ability to personalise ads that could mean that the value and, and pricing of ads will decline. And that really, you know, that could really hurt. And it's not just Facebook that's objecting. And the whole um, mobile advertising industry is, is, is quite worried about this. I mean, they sort of say that it's, it's going back to the kind of, quote, spray and pay, unquote, model of advertising. You know, it's that world where, as um, someone famously said, half the money I spend on ads gets wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. So if you damage the ability to kind of track people, build up profiles of them and serve them personalised ads, you sort of go backwards from an advertiser's point of view. And, you know, if you think about that, then there could actually be an impact on Apple itself. Um, Apple needs its mobile app ecosystem to thrive. And that's why Apple created the IDFA in the first place. So Apple itself, I'm sure, will be carefully watching the, the impact of all of this.
1: Now, Apple is portraying itself as angelic, but it does seem like it's a legitimate way to manage personal data, doesn't it?
2: I think it's right that Apple is very genuinely standing up for what it believes. It's also true that it can definitely afford to do that, um, just because most of its model is coming from selling hardware, very little from advertising. So Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's boss, is is correct to call that out, that it's sort of taking the, the moral kind of stratospherically high ground on privacy, you know, is slightly self-serving and certainly isn't hurting Apple. And Facebook has quite, quite a nice argument for these times, I think, where people are so concerned about inequality and, and spending power and so on. And Facebook says that Apple has been kind of elitist, serving the interests of people who could can, who can afford a $1,000 iPhone. Um, and Facebook really believes in the model of free content that is paid for by ads. And you know, while clearly you know invasive tracking of people across the internet, a lot of people find that creepy. But you know, after all, no one's forcing you to watch the ads, no one's forcing you to buy stuff. So I think Facebook have a have a point there as well.
1: Now Facebook is clearly angry, but can they actually do anything about this?
2: Well, it's come out recently as tempers have flared that for months they've been preparing a lawsuit based on kind of the, the control that Apple have over the App Store, one of the the world's two app stores, I and mean, clearly a focus of antitrust regulators, the fact that you've got this completely entrenched duopoly there. And I think that clearly for Facebook to target the dominance of the app store probably does hit a bit of a nerve. Um, America's DOJ is investigating Apple and the app store and the European Commission is as well. And it's interesting because, you know, not only does this Facebook-Apple feud kind of fit a pattern of these um, big tech rivalries, but there's also sort of an established tradition of using um antitrust as a kind of competitive weapon so sort of saying well it's 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 not me it's it's that company over there that's got the got the monopoly issue and microsoft tried this with google's dominant position in search imagine that apple will be a little bit nervous about this at the, but on the other hand facebook itself has got the two big antitrust lawsuits that have been filed against it in the US so i'm not sure Facebook will actually go ahead with an antitrust lawsuit against Apple.
1: And for the long term, Facebook v. Apple, what do you think?
2: Well, I think Apple's stand on privacy is is such a kind of brand and company defining issue. I think Apple's really unlikely to be deflected from it. And in the end, what you're going to see is just in this situation, Apple has the hardware, Apple is the gatekeeper and Apple has the power. And it also seems like Apple
1: has public opinion on its side. It seems people kind of like this idea.
2: That's right. Its political kind of social timing is impeccable.
1: That's so interesting. Tamsin Booth, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Subscribers to The Economist can also read Tamsin's fantastic briefing from June on the performance of Amazon's many varied businesses and clues to the challenges ahead for its new boss, Andy Jassy. Babbage listeners can get a special introductory deal at economist.com slash podcast offer and that link is in the show notes coming up we talk to oxford university's leading ai researcher about stripping back the myths around artificial intelligence and the innovation behind a simple yet world-changing
2: technology leds cool fact
1: Next, the discussion of artificial intelligence tends to be one of extremes. For some, it's doom and gloom, an eventual Skynet-like villainous robot network storming the Earth. Or a more mundane apocalypse, where automation slowly erodes jobs and takes inequality to newly dystopian heights. For others, AI is a panacea, the two-letter solution to every unanswered question, from climate change to curing cancer to winning the World Cup or writing the great American novel. But perhaps AI has become a shorthand for something that, well, it isn't. Mike Woldridge is a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford, and he's been working on AI since the days of the floppy disk. His new book, A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence, What It Is, Where We Are, and Where We're Going, published in Britain as The Road to Conscious Machines, looks at the story of AI and aims to demystify the science around it. He spoke to Tom Standage, the editor of The Economist, The World Ahead.
3: It's a strange thing that the dystopian AI seems to make for much better movies than utopian AI. I think we have made real progress, but it's been on tiny, narrow, little problems, getting computer programs that can recognize faces in a picture, computer programs that can just come up with very simple captions for what's going on in a picture, computer programs that can do um, usable, passable, automated translation, something which seemed like a very distant prospect as recently ago as as 20 years. And these are all things which have become a reality um, thanks to advances in AI over the last decade. But they don't begin to point to general AI, the idea of machines that are as, as powerful as human beings are, as intellectually capable as human beings are. They just don't point to that at all.
4: Now, we're, we're talking about AI here as if we all kind of know what it is and agree what it is. But actually, we it's rather hard to pin down, isn't it? So what is your definition of AI? And why is it so hard to define?
3: That's that's a very difficult question. The most difficult question you could have asked me. Thank you, Tom. Um, uh, And you're absolutely right. The truth is, um, it is extremely hard to pin down exactly what AI is, partly because it's a moving target. There is an old joke um, and there is some truth to it that the moment that you understand how something works or the moment that something becomes routine and commonplace, it ceases to be AI. So there are a lot of things that we take for granted now, which uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago would have been regarded as AI, which we now just don't think of being AI at all. So for me, what is AI? So AI is is basically uh, about extending the range of capabilities that machines have, getting machines to do things which currently require brains, brains, potentially nervous systems or potentially bodies, uh, which currently machines can't do and for which standard computing techniques don't offer any solution. It's a moving target because once we expand the capabilities of machines and we get them to do things, very often people stop regarding it as being AI at all
4: you mentioned that we worry about the wrong things with AI. So what are the things that we worry about that we shouldn't be worrying about? And what are the things that we're not worrying about that we should be worrying about?
3: There is a big debate about whether AI poses an existential risk. And we don't know what technology is going to look like in 50 years, 100 years, or let alone 1,000 years. But at the moment, we don't see any path from where we are now to... Uh, anything that could present an existential risk. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you do wanna lose sleep about something, by all means lose sleep about nuclear weapons, um, climate change, populist politics, and, and, and I could give you a, a list of other things to worry about. But right now, I don't think existential threat is something that we should be worried about. And actually, the, the, the issue isn't really whether there is an existential threat or not. For the moment, I think there isn't. But the point is, if we're losing sleep about existential threats and having government committees about existential threats on AI, then that's distracting us from stuff which is affecting people right now. And one of the headline issues, for example, is bias. Um, Machines make decisions about whether people get bank loans. They may make decisions about um, how long people should serve in jail. These are not artificial examples. There are programs that do that with elements of AI right now. I would much rather the debate right now was focused on those very real issues than at the moment what are rather artificial issues about existential threats.
4: Okay, so less worrying about killer robots, um, more worrying about algorithmic bias. What about the other big fear that people have had in recent years, which is this technology is getting much cleverer and soon, you know, lots of people are going to be out of a job as a result. Where do
3: you stand on that? Okay, interestingly, so the the work in this area was galvanised by a report by two colleagues of mine at the University of Oxford, Mike Osborne and Carl-Benedict Frey. They wrote a report in which they predicted, I think it was up to 47% of jobs were susceptible to automation in, in North America. So I think there are challenges, but I think there's a couple of things to say. Firstly, automation of human labor is nothing new. It doesn't just go back to the industrial revolution. It goes back to the invention of the plow. It goes back to the, to the, to the very first time that somebody hooked an, a, an oxen or a, a horse to a plow. And what did, ox-driven ploughs and and horse-driven ploughs do for farmers. It didn't make them redundant, it just made them more efficient farmers. So firstly, it's nothing new. And secondly, I think As much as making people redundant, it will actually change the nature of work in much the same way that, for example, the internet and the World Wide Web have changed the character of our working lives. Um, And I think AI will do the same thing. AI, everywhere that a human being makes a decision, there is another voice in the room, which is making suggestions to you or guiding you or helping you, making better decisions. I was had the pleasure of being in the audience for a talk on AI in Shanghai before the pandemic, and the two speakers were Elon Musk and Jack Ma. Jack Maher, founder of Alibaba. And Elon was definitely, I think, clearly of the view that AI is going to make everybody redundant. You know, AI is going to be better than human beings at everything. And Jack Maher just very calmly said, uh, no, it isn't. There's going to be plenty of jobs for people. And I have to say, of the two, I rather sided with, uh, with Jack Maher on that one.
4: Excellent. Uh, What else do you think are the interesting areas of research in AI that are most worth paying attention to at the moment?
3: So there's a very long history of experience in AI that the, the hardest problems are those in the real world. And the real world is messy and fuzzy and difficult and complex and governed by all sorts of weird laws, which we've been programmed over billions of years of evolution to be able to learn how to understand those laws. But here's the thing. If we take a game, go back to DeepMind, because they've got many of the most celebrated systems in this area. One of the most beautiful systems that they had, one which really woke me up to the fact that we really were in a new era of AI research was a program to play Atari video games. You You may have read about it. This is back in 2014. It's, I mean, you watch the videos of these, particularly the video of it playing Breakout. It's quite astonishing. The way it works is a technique called reinforcement learning. And what reinforcement learning does is it says, okay, If you did something good, then the next time you're in a similar situation, do the same thing again or make it a bit more likely that you'll do the same thing again. Whereas if you did something bad, if you lost points somehow, you make it a bit less likely. Now, that's hiding lots of sophisticated maths, very sophisticated maths and clever algorithmic techniques. But that's basically how reinforcement learning works. So the DeepMind program just played these games, but it played them endlessly. With half of those games, I think, it learned at least human level competence, and in some games, at Breakout, it basically learned to play them optimally as well as they could be played. But, and this is a quite an important message, reinforcement learning doesn't work in the real world. You can't train a driverless car by putting it out on the road and just letting it experiment. know, if you're playing Space Invaders, every time you are blown up in a game of Space Invaders, it doesn't matter, you just play again, right? But in the real world, it matters. And so what I would really like to see is progress, more progress on AI in the real world. I think that's a very big barrier and things will get very exciting when we start to see that.
1: Our thanks to Mike Wooldridge and to Tom Standage. And finally, as you scroll through your phone or sit in front of the television, check your speed while driving at night or scan your groceries at the supermarket, you're probably not thinking about the one invention that makes all these things possible, the LED. Light-emitting diodes, or LEDs, have completely transformed the modern world. They're made from semiconductors with a positively charged component and a negatively charged one. When electrons move between these components, photons are emitted and the light is produced. This revolution in energy efficiency, turning electricity to light with hardly any heat, hasn't just lowered your utility bill. The Climate Group estimates that switching streetlights to LEDs worldwide could save 1.4 billion tons of carbon dioxide a year, nearly 5% of global emissions. This week, the creators and developers of LED technology have been awarded the Queen Elizabeth Prize for engineering that benefits humanity. One of the winners, Professor Russell Dupuy of Georgia Tech, spoke to the economist resident light enthusiast Oliver Morton. He described how, as a young student of his fellow prize winner, Nick Holonyak, he first saw light coming out of a
0: semiconductor. Professor Holonyak brought in a small power supply and a liquid nitrogen doer, and he showed us this light-emitting diode at room temperature, and then plunged it into liquid nitrogen and the doer was glass so we could see the light just explode out of this small crystal. It was a, an awakening.
5: How far along were you in your own work on semiconductors when you started to realise quite what an impact LEDs might be going to have?
0: I came into this as an undergraduate student and by that time LEDs were commercially available. They were in Indicator lamps mostly in electronic instruments and in computers as well. But uh, it was not a flashlight. It wasn't anything you would use to illuminate even a dark room. So once a month, Nick would go visit George. They would kick around ideas and then try some new experiments. And gradually, the efficiency improved dramatically. And George's group was really one of the world leaders in that early phase of the hockey stick where the LED performance went from an indicator to uh, first a red taillight on a car. Then it got better and better and newer materials. And we had green and blue. Uh, George and his team developed yellow and high brightness red. And we had traffic signals. And when you have the red, blue, green, you start thinking about white light. So uh, it's been, as George would say, a 50-year road.
5: But to make that make a difference, you also need production systems that will allow you to make these semiconductors reliably into a high quality. And I understand that's where quite a lot of your work has been
0: focused. That's correct. I I went to Rockwell International in Anaheim, California. That laboratory had uh, a long history of semiconductor work. I joined that group in 1975 and basically took that technology to grow semiconductor films and advanced it and developed a whole new approach that led to the ternary, quaternary epitaxial films we use today. And so my work was to show that this process, which most people had thought was not even interesting, uh, was actually the way to go, that it was the pathway to make large areas of highly uniform, high-quality semiconductor materials. Today we have literally thousands of large-scale reactors using that basic process 24-7 to make billions of LEDs a day for the marketplace.
5: You're basically building up these semiconductors almost atomic layer by atomic layer. Is that right?
0: Exactly. That's absolutely correct. The light coming into your eye from a traffic signal or a taillight or your computer display is coming from a region in that chip that's on the order of three nanometers, two nanometers, and maybe there are four of those layers or even just one of those layers. So the efficiency of these devices is incredible. Internally, light-emitting diodes are almost all of the commercial products are above 90% internally efficient. And so practically every electron creates a photon. There's nothing in the physical world we know of that is more efficient. The thing that matters is, well, how do I make this process work in a convenient, commercially acceptable
5: package? You've been in academia now for some time. Did you ever work at Bell Labs where that first transistor work was done?
0: Yes, I was uh, at Bell Labs. Well, it was exciting because I was in what was called Building 1. I was really close to that famous... of Bell Laboratories where that experiment was done.
5: Do you think that you or America as a whole misses that culture of the big corporate research lab, the sort of research lab that wins Nobel prizes and which can dominate the field intellectually like Bell Labs did?
0: Personally, I do. I think that if you had such a set of illustrious labs, there were many that were really critical for this development. I know when I graduated from my PhD, The goal was to get to one of those labs. And as you would imagine, that sort of open, exploratory, but yet directed research gave rise to so many wonderful things we use today, everything from information theory to the laser diode to the laser itself, which was invented at Hughes Research Labs in California. So the question is, where is that innovation going to come from now that these labs have largely disappeared because of pressures from the economy and the way the world is operating today. Having posed that question,
5: what do you think is the answer?
0: Well, I think it's hopefully going to be individual innovation. So today we look at Apple, SpaceX, Tesla, Google. These are individual creations almost. They're small groups of people who start off with a little funding, Interestingly, that's the same way Hewlett-Packard started, right? So this is not a new model. It's an old model. But at the physics level, we don't have the kind of support that the industrial labs have. But Facebook, Google, SpaceX, Tesla, they're pushing the envelope on engineering all the time. And driverless cars won't be invented by Ford, probably. They'll come out of Google or somewhere. Timing matters. There's a certain cycle to the world. And if you miss the cycle, you're going to miss out. Our thanks to Russell Dupuis, and our
1: congratulations to the other Queen Elizabeth Prize winners, Isamu Akasaki, Shuji Nakamura, Nick Holonyak, and George Crawford, for their work on LEDs. And you can hear more from Oliver Morton about the literally brilliant science of light on our Babbage podcast from the 20th of January. It's called Photon Opportunity. I highly recommend it. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It matters a lot. I'm Kenneth Cookier. And in London, waiting for AI to do my job so I can write the great American novel, this is The Economist.